The NFL preseason is here, so check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you need fantasy rankings, we've got our rankings and sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. So come listen to Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and me, Craig Horlbeck, on the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. Stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, we are here for our second town hall episode of The Town. I've got producer Craig. We've got questions that people have tweeted at me or sent to me. Craig, you ready for this? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is a version of a mailbag that I have done for my newsletter. I do a newsletter twice a week for Puck, and it gets into some of the industry questions that people have for me. This one will be a little bit more populist, a little more consumer-oriented. We'll get into some status of different movies and different questions people have. We'll do more in-depth questions up front. And then a lightning round where Craig will just spew them at me and I'll try to answer as fast as I can. All right, let's do it. All right, first question here is a good one. They say, without question, a legacy E.T. sequel could flirt with Top Gun Maverick box office numbers. Who holds the keys here? Spielberg, Amblin, Universal? What's it going to take? That is a good question. So it's interesting because the original E.T., which came out in 1982, was a Universal film. But... So Universal technically has rights and can do with the property what it wants. But obviously, the 900-pound gorilla in the room here is Steven Spielberg. This is his signature movie. He made the E.T. icon, the logo of his company, Amblin. And he has so far not wanted to do any kind of a sequel, reboot, anything with the property. It's just kind of sitting there. And I'm sure they have had meetings at Universal about how to exploit this. But Spielberg is so powerful that he could basically say yes, no, and this, which is essentially what happened with Jurassic World. I mean, they that property sat on the shelf for a while, and Universal finally came to him with an idea that he could get behind, and then the Jurassic World franchise came aboard. But um, so far, it has not happened with E.T. So you think he just feels E.T. is more precious than a lot of his other works, like Indiana Jones's and Jurassic Park's? I have not talked to him about this, but I know people in his world that say this is the one that he is the most sentimental about mm. because it really was. He had had hits before, like Close Encounters and Jaws, but this is the one that was you know, the biggest movie of the year. It was the one that cemented him as the kind of voice of his generation. And I just don't know if anything has come across his desk 
that would do it justice. I mean, I can think of just off the top of my head, I'd love to see these characters years later. You know, Elliot in the movie is now in his 50s, probably. And what's his life been like after having that encounter as a young kid? Yeah, you could totally make it work. On the rewatchables, they did ET and they joked about how there's there's a world in which like Elliot is still kind of looked at as an outsider because technically in the ET movies, the rest of the world does not know about ET or Elliot. Which is hilarious because the kids were like flying across the valley in their <laughs> But bikes. it was the 80s, you know? <laughs> was, Unless somebody saw it with their two eyes. I don't know how you prove that. No, he could be like a Fox Mulder type, like an X-Files guy who's like trying to convince everybody that aliens are real. He's a hermit in his basement trying to bring E.T. back. The thing is also, the E.T. cast is all alive. I mean, even the mom, Dee Wallace, is alive. And, uh, you know, Peter Coyote is still alive. The three kids are all alive. And I, I looked, you know, Drew Barrymore, obviously. The the other brother, I think his name is Tom McNaughton. He still acts like, uh, I mean, Henry Thomas is still around. Like, the writer passed away. Melissa Matheson passed away. But, like, Spielberg could totally shepherd this if he wanted to. He just has not. But that does bring up an interesting question of the Spielberg library and what would be the best for a possible remake that he could get on board with. Yeah, like I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is still lying around. Like you, I, I, the alien universe in the Spielberg world could is probably something that you could uh, pick apart and turn into a lot of other stuff. Totally. Uh, Columbia Pictures owns that one. And, you know, I think the a lot of those, they're doing a color purple remake. So that's one of them. And obviously they did all the Jaws sequels. Um, they're doing another Raiders right now. A lot of the movies he produced in the 80s would be ripe. The biggest one, I think, is The Goonies, which was a Richard Donner-directed movie. He passed away recently. But Goonies seems absolutely ripe for a sequel, especially now that the guy who played Data is a star again, thanks to Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they could round up Josh Brolin and they could get... Chunk would probably do it. I, I, you know, they've talked about it for years, but it's never happened. Or, I mean, you don't even have to remake it with the same actor. I mean, you could just do a new Goonies with new young people. I mean, like... Yeah, maybe make, like, Sean Astin is, like, the mayor of the town or something, and, like, there's a new group of kids. Yeah, cast the kid from Stranger Things, Dustin, in it, you know? Totally. I've always wondered why they haven't been able to get Goonies off the ground. Uh, but the big holy grail of the Spielberg-produced movies is... Back to the Future. Mm. I mean, if they, if Universal could figure out a way to do another Back to the Future, I think they would do it in a second. Bob Zemeckis is still around. Bob Gale, the writer, is still around. Like, that's a tough one because Michael J. Fox's health isn't great. But um, I actually bumped into Christopher Lloyd at a restaurant this past week. Really? He still looks good. Yeah, he still looks good. I went up and said hello. Like, he's great. He'd probably make an appearance. Like, they... If they could figure out a way to do the time travel thing, it's, you know, 30 years later now, more, and make it so that the 80s are like the 50s from the first movie, that could be fun. Yeah, that definitely feels like, that feels like a Netflix series coming in two years. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the thing. It's like, you got to figure out how to make it theatrical, like the Top Gun sequel. And there is no such thing as Tom Cruise, because obviously very few actors look kind of the same as they did 35 years ago. Yeah, Tom Cruise is just about as much of an alien as E.T. is. Yeah, well, he could. He's been, you know, cryogenically frozen, or wherever ET has been for the last thirty years. <laughs> he's been with Tom. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next question. Okay. In the next decade or two, do you see the WWE pumping out more crossover stars for film and television, like John Cena and The Rock? That's a good one. I don't. I don't follow WWE that closely, but I do know 
that that's the goal. Obviously, they want more stars. I mean, they think Roman Reigns can be a big star. They've tried a couple things with him. The big speculation about WWE is, will it be sold? And that, I think, is a really interesting question because you got to wonder what the plans are for the McMahons post-Vince. And I think, you know, the two obvious buyers for WWE would probably be Comcast or NBC Universal that already has a big deal with to broadcast a lot of WWE events and probably Fox. I mean, Fox has a deal with them. Fox would probably love to own the WWE and could probably do a lot with it across Fox Sports and across the network. Uh, The other one that people have talked about as a potential acquirer might be Endeavor, which is the owner of the UFC. And Endeavor owns a talent agency, and they are in the star-making business. So perhaps if they also represent The Rock, and if Endeavor got a hold of the WWE, perhaps they could help make a lot of those wrestlers into bigger stars. Um, but a WWE is a, is a company I think that people should be watching over the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm curious if somebody like John Cena and The Rock, if there can be new iterations of them or if that's kind of a, a one of one. Are you a WWE guy? No. You know. Not even when you were like 12? I used to play the video games when I was a kid. I liked those. I liked Rey Mysterio. Yeah, I was super into WrestleMania, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I think it's a good product. Macho Man. Um, all right. Next question. Do you think a WGA strike, Writers Guild strike, is quite likely on May 1st, 2023? And how quickly do you think the DGA, the Directors Guild, will cut the Writers Guild's legs out from underneath them? Interesting question. So, yes, I do think the Writers Guild could be headed for another strike. It's been, what, 13, 14 years since the the last big strike Mm -hmm. that was really crippling for the entertainment industry. And if you look at the economics of what's happening in streaming, and I've written about this for Puck, the writers really need to make some gains here because a lot of the things that have happened over the past few years, fueled by the pandemic, is the elimination of back-end compensation, is the elimination of ownership stakes. A lot of these studios are moving to weekly payment schedules rather than episodic, which makes sense because they're making fewer episodes of these shows and they're taking a long time but they found a way to pay these writers only on you know 10 week increments or hold them for six months but only pay them for 10 weeks and there's a lot of like shenanigans going on in that world that are technically allowed by the writers guild but as a as a practical matter does not do the guild members that much um benefit so I I do think that the writers are going to have to take a stand on a lot of these issues. And the only way any change is going to happen in the streaming age is through the threat of a strike, because these guilds are the only thing that can shut down the industry. So you think a strike is inevitable? Not inevitable. No, no, no. I mean, there are costs as well. And I think that the studios will cry poverty because of the stock prices of all their companies, which are legitimate. I mean, these studios are in a precarious place right now because they're not valued like they were even six months ago. But the last time the deal came up three years ago, it was the the height of COVID. So they just kind of signed off on modest increases, kind of a status quo deal. This is the time where they feel that they are going to dig their heels in and try to get some serious gains with these studios. And we'll see if they can. As to the Directors Guild, that is the traditional hierarchy or the the Directors Guild will go first and negotiate their deal first. And then that will become a template 
for the other guilds. I mean, that favors the studios because the directors are less militant about what they want. It's a smaller guild. It's uh, people who generally make more money and have more control over their work. So they don't necessarily cause problems the way that the Writers Guild often does. So we'll see what the Directors Guild does, but I do think the WGA is girding for a fight here. Do you think writers now are more or less valued in Hollywood than they used to be? Oh, that's a really tough question because writers have never gotten the respect that they deserve. I think that in the era of the massive overall deal and some of these nine-figure paydays, the upper echelon of writers has been treated extremely well by these companies. And it's the middle class that has kind of fallen apart. They call it a singles and doubles business now because, yeah, you can make a, a living as a writer, but you're not going to get that deal where you get put on a show during pilot season and then all of a sudden it's a hit and you are making... It turns into Friends and then you make $50 yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, Friends, yes, Friends made, made hundreds of millions of dollars for the creators, but it also elevated a lot of these writers that were on the show into millionaires. You know, they were they were attached to a show that generated so much profit that they were able to benefit. And it's really a caste system now where the upper, upper echelon is making money. The, the bottom of the barrel is not. And that's tough. Do you think that because most content nowadays is coming from past IP, that do you think that makes the writer more or less valuable? Oh, less. I mean, if you look at if you look at the way that these studios value writers, the Disney values them the least because Disney has IP that it brings to the table. And the rule at Disney is if you were working on one of the pre-branded IP shows, you get the worst deal because they don't need that much creative, you know, oomph to the project. I would argue that they should probably be paying people more. Yeah, because the risk of botching a Star Wars movie or a Marvel film is so much scarier and impactful for a studio than screwing up a $30 million original story that flops. So couldn't you make the argument to pay the writers who are writing scripts based on this valuable IP even more? I totally agree, but when you're looking at the inception of these projects and how the deal-making plays out, if I come to you with a Marvel property and say, hey, would you like to write my Miss Marvel show or my WandaVision show or whatever, that's the property. That's the star. It's much better than someone who comes along and says, hey, you know, we need to make something out of an office comedy. You need to create that. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and, and there are exceptions. I don't want to speak for everything. I know people on certain Marvel shows do get paid very well. Um, I know that obviously they, they're making big deals for these Star Wars movies to try to eventually get something off the ground. And, you know, it's it's just a matter of leverage. And when Disney comes to the table with very popular IP, it has a lot of leverage. All right, next question here. What are the box office economics of programs like AMC A-List? How does a ticket purchased through the program get calculated in the box office? How does it affect AMC's bottom line? That is a great question because I think people might wonder, hey, I pay, you know, 25 bucks a month for my AMC subscription. And, and I've I seen to- 10 movies, yeah. <laughs> right. So do the math there and they're losing money. Yeah, like MoviePass. I was seeing th- three movies a week with MoviePass paying $8 a month. Exactly. And the diff- and that's why MoviePass doesn't exist anymore, by the way. <laughs> but um, Or it's very different. So AMC does have to pay the studio the price that it agreed to 
for each admission to the movie. So even if you are on their subscription program, every time you go to the movie, that counts as someone who has seen the movie and AMC has to pay for that. So it really benefits AMC if you sub- uh, sign up for their subscription service. And don't and go. Don't go <laughs> and don't go to any movies. That's their model? That's the plan? Well, but think about it, though. I mean, when you go to movies, you do other things there. You buy concessions. Right. And AMC keeps 100% of your $10 popcorn. So there are ways that they can make that up. And there are certain deals that they can cut for certain types of discounting. But for the most part, if they are doing $4 Tuesdays or if they are doing an AMC subscription product, they are still paying the studios uh, what they normally contract for that price. And typically it's about 50-50 that you split the the average price for the ticket. Um, sometimes for bigger movies, the studios get more in the U.S. and the percentage is a little bit less for the studios overseas. All right, we're going to get into the lightning round now. First one, why do we never talk about the absolute atrocity that is the Amazon video user interface? Oh, it's they just redid it. It's coming out very soon, maybe by the time this posts. They just totally, they totally did it. Yes, it was horrible. It was definitely the worst in the entire streaming universe, which was ironic because Amazon is Amazon. You'd think that they would be able to perfect this, but they now have an entirely new one that's being rolled out, so you'll see it soon. Okay, next one. Thoughts on why the He-Man universe has gone untapped in today's IP climate? <laughs> I have exactly zero thoughts on that subject. Same. Uh, Okay. Why are you hesitant to crown Apple TV Plus as HBO 2.0? Because Apple TV has been around for 20 seconds and HBO has been around for 20 years. Also, I don't know why it's not HBO 2.0. It's like maybe HBO 0.8. Yeah, like HBO is Game of Thrones in succession. That's why. Exactly. And 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 when I say 20 years, I mean 40 years. It's actually been around, but they have you know they have been doing these premium original series for 25 years now, and you know longer if you go back to the very beginning. And Apple TV has some good shows, but they also don't have a lot of. I mean, they have a lot of garbage. So I don't know. They just don't. They don't have. Yeah, they don't have a Game of Thrones. They don't have a Sopranos. They don't. They have like the morning show. They're just getting started. Exactly. Like they, it's a good product. I like it. I watch it all the time. People say it's the new HBO. I kind of grimace a little. I'm like, what? I I will say I do kind of a, like equate it to HBO visually, and the the user interface is very nice and has the same vibe as HBO. I don't know if it's like the color palette they chose, but like I have frequently typed in HBO Max to watch Severance because in my head Severance airs on HBO, and I'm yeah. like, oh wait, it's Apple, and they like they're kind of the same in my mind. It's nice. I mean, I'm sure HBO was the model when they were looking at what to do. But Apple, had, I mean, obviously Apple is brilliant about how they package their products and the the aesthetics of it. And they brought that to the ethos of the streaming service, which is really smart. Why was Bob Chapek renewed? I have no clue why Peter Rice wasn't made the new CEO. Oh, God. I can't. I just can't get into this again. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've talked about this many times. Bob Chapek was renewed because he's the CEO of Disney because the board felt that he did not get a proper chance to prove himself during the pandemic. They like what he's talking about in terms of the parks and extracting more revenue from the parks. They recognize that he has a weakness on the content side, but they think that he can fix that problem and overcome some of the missteps that like he had in Florida and with Scarlett Johansson and some of the reorgs he's done. 
So, and Peter Rice, Peter Rice is a great executive. He ran all of TV until he was recently fired, but he was not an automatic CEO either. I mean, he had grown up in the content business, had no idea about consumer products or the theme parks or any of that. He's also British and Disney is sort of the consummate American company. And he was perceived as an outsider. He came from Fox, worked for the Murdochs forever. So he was not an automatic for CEO either. With the premiere of the animated film Luck, will Apple and Skydance get backlash for working with John Lasseter? I think the short answer is no. Um, you know, John Lasseter stepped down after, actually, when I was editor of The Hollywood Reporter, he stepped down after we wrote about some claims of uh, abusive behavior. He was, you know, touching women and inappropriate hugs and things like that. I do think that people will give him a chance to come back. And he's been kind of laying low for the last few years. He left Disney. Um, you know, this is a guy who was a co-founder of Pixar and was responsible for, you know, the animation revolution of the 2000s um, after, you know, Toy Story was so big in the 90s. And he is one of the great animation talents of all time. So I think people are curious to see what he does at Skydance. This first movie, Luck, is supposed to be good. There are other better movies coming, I am told that uh, will really kind of hopefully for them establish Skydance as uh, as a power in the animation field. And I think people are curious about that. doesn't mean people won't come out of the out of the, the woodwork and challenge him, especially if especially if he makes some dumb comments when he does do press finally. Um, if he said, you know, if he's not repentant, if he's not apologetic to people who felt that he, acted inappropriately, then I think you could see backlash. But just working again, I don't think we will see that backlash. What do you suppose will happen with The Flash amidst its star's recent entanglements? Uh, the Ezra Miller question. Mm -hmm. You know, I, maybe I'm naive here, but I don't think that the audience actually cares at all about this stuff. I don't want to minimize his behavior and it seems like he has some issues and has been, you know, abusive to people. But what I have seen reported is kind of bad boy star behavior and not something that rises to the level where Warner Brothers would step in and fire him or you know, the movie's done. And that's the thing about this Flash movie. Warner's is high on it because they see it as a kind of reset of the DC universe. You know, there are multiple Batmans in it. There are offshoot characters that are planned. This is a big summer style movie and it is a big priority for the studio. So I don't see them changing it at all or doing anything to him unless stuff comes out that's even worse or causes, you know, them to really have to reassess them being in business with him in general. As of now, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Do you think this movie is going to turn him into a big star? If it's good and if it's a big deal. I mean, he's been in previous DC movies and, you know, he's not really known for anything beyond this, but I've always thought that he's the best thing in these DC movies. He's actually charismatic and funny and seems to be perfect for this character. Uh, I hope it's good for him, but, you know, who knows? Okay, two more. What are you most outraged about these days? <laughs> All right, I have a soapbox here. So one of my favorite shows is The Challenge. Mm. Simmons and I, Bill Simmons and I share that in common. And the best part of The Challenge has always been TJ Lavin. Great host, BMX legend. You know, TJ is like 
the challenge in my mind. So that show has been on MTV for how many years? 20 years or so? They moved it over to CBS this season, and they're doing this like international all-star kind of reality show version of the challenge. And it's been doing pretty well in the ratings, all things considered. They gave TJ like a weird makeover for the show. Like he used to always wear, you know, cool leather jackets or kind of look like a secret agent or wear his BMX stuff. They have him in like, I mean, Google TJ Lavin, the challenge CBS, and the the photos are insane. He's wearing like, it looks like he's like a dad on vacation in Orlando. He's wearing like these weird patterned shirts. And I'm not a fashion guy, but you watch this and you're like, what do they do to TJ? Yeah, he looks like a dad in a in a Nickelodeon sitcom now. Totally. And he's not that old. He's like in his 40s still. Like <laughs> This is um this is my outrage of the moment. Like they're like I want to I want a, a free TJ campaign because they need to get him off CBS. This was clearly some you know wardrobe person or publicist saying, oh, we have to appeal to the CBS audience. They're older, they're more conservative. You know, we have to make him more palatable. But no, TJ is TJ. Just let him do what he does and wear what he wants. Okay. All right. Last is, that, is that enough? Is that enough for a soapbox for you? <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was good. There are no more important issues in the world than this. I hope TJ's listening. I'm sure he agrees. Uh, I'm sure he does. All right. Final question. When are we getting the 10 meanest stars in Hollywood episode? Uh, never. <laughs> I, I said it. We're never doing that. It was hard enough for us to do the nicest people. I've gotten a lot of response to that, by the way. Um, one person that I forgot to include that I should have was Matthew Reese. The star of the Americans. Oh, okay. Very, very nice guy. Total mensch. You know, he once called me because he had to back out of an interview. And like, he has a very thick Irish accent. And I didn't believe it was him. I thought it was like a friend of mine pretending to be some Irish actor. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to do an Irish accent. He's like, I can't make it to the interview. I'm really sorry. I'm like, who is this? He's like, it's Matthew Reese. I'm like, yeah, whatever. He's like, no, it really is. (laughs) So, I don't know. He's, he's just always been a super nice guy. Um, I got all kinds of suggestions. I also got some people sending me some not-so-nice stories about the people I did pick, oh. which I'm not going to mention here. Yeah, probably a good call. Let's, let's Not Kimmel, though. Kimmel, Kimmel's still unscathed. Uh, all right, that'll do it. The second town hall in the books. All right, that's it. I will be back from vacation on Monday. And I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck and you. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.